Welcome to the Staying Ageless Podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Associate E, also known as Raw Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach. And today on the show, we'll be chatting about slave food and how racism affects longevity. To get this longevity party started, I'm going to give you guys some background on some of the changes that happen to the body when we are stressed. And later, we'll chat with Dr. Columbus Batiste, cardiologist also known as the Heart Healthy Doc. I am so grateful to have each and every one of you tuning into the show from all over the world. Shout out to listeners in Uganda, Australia, Mozambique, South Africa, the UK, France, Germany, Canada, Poland, and the USA. I appreciate you all. If today's show inspires you, I'm inviting you to go ahead and subscribe and please rate the show on Apple Podcasts and write a review. It means the world to me to get feedback, so any reviews are much appreciated. Okay, so today on the show, I'm really excited to chat about racism and health and how it all intertwines and affects African Americans in particular because 99% of my clients are black women and I am a black woman and I have complete familiarity with the amount of stress that just being a black woman comes with on a daily basis. We have work stress, we got family stress, we have collective racism stress, uh, we have internal stressors, which can be mounting anxiety, depression, perfectionism, and the internal pressure to succeed, all of which leaves us sicker and more imbalanced health-wise. Ethnic groups of color in America suffer increasing disparities in the incidence, prevalence, mortality, and burden of disease, and in the adverse health outcomes compared with white Americans. Racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare occur among several population and subpopulation groups, such as Native Americans, Asian Americans, Latinos, and so forth. But African Americans in particular have a very unique history in America due to slavery, emancipation, segregation, racism, and ongoing discrimination. Compared with white Americans, African Americans are less likely to have private or employment-based health insurance, more likely to be covered by Medicaid or publicly funded insurance, and twice as likely to be insured even though eight out of 10 are in working families. A disproportionate percentage of African Americans work in jobs that do not provide health insurance at all. So today I'm not really interested in rattling off a bunch of grim stats. That's not really my thing. (laughs) What I'm hoping to do today with this discussion and the guests we have is connect some of the dots about how we began with slavery and all the way to our present day and how the racist institutions and racism connect to the foods being offered to all of us but specifically also black people and also how that then creates our subsequent spikes in health conditions, many of which are preventable. But before we get all the way into it with our guests, I want to break down the types of stressors we commonly face and what happens to the body in a stress state. In case you missed the memo child, stress kills. So that's why when I talk about stressors, I use the acronym DIE. Yes, literally D-I-E. D is for diet stressors, which is anything that we're consuming, chemical or otherwise. So we're eating processed foods, dead oils, fast foods. It's also the things that we put on our skin as far as our beauty products, 
um, all the chemicals and toxins we're exposed to in our homes. So if you're out here using heavy bleach all the time, all of those cleaning products, all those things have to be thought of as a part of our diet because you're inhaling that. You might even have skin contact with some of these things, and that is really not going to help your health. I is for internal stressors. The internal stressors include thoughts or patterns of thinking like anxiety, depression, um, emotions in general, and how those then affect us. E is for external stressors, which includes our work, family, and relational stress or circumstances. So this could be being in a toxic job or just having more pressures at home with kids or with your partner. So let's talk about some of the things that happen when we do get stressed in the actual body. When the body is stressed, the muscles tense up. Okay. So the muscle tension is almost a reflex reaction to stress. It's the body's way of guarding against injury and pain. With the sudden onset of stress, the muscles are going to tense up all at once, and then they release the tension when the stress passes. Chronic stress causes the muscles in the body to be in a more or less constant state of guardedness. When muscles are taut and tense for long periods of time, this may trigger other reactions of the body and even promote stress-related disorders. Stress and strong emotions can present with also respiratory symptoms. So shortness of breath, rapid breathing as the airway between the nose and the lungs constricts. For some people with respiratory diseases, this is generally, for people without respiratory diseases, this is generally not a problem as the body can manage the additional work to breathe comfortably. But for others, a psychological stressor can exacerbate breathing problems. So if you have asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, you might be in that camp. Next, we could talk about the heart and the blood vessels, which are two elements of the cardiovascular system that work together in providing nourishment and oxygen to the organs of the body. These two elements also coordinate in the body's response to stress. So acute stress, stress that's momentary or short term, such as meeting a deadline, being stuck in traffic, or suddenly slamming on your brakes to avoid an accident, causes an increase in your heart rate and stronger contractions of your heart muscle. With the stress hormones, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and cortisol acting as messengers for these effects. During acute stress, the blood vessels that direct blood to the large muscles in the heart dilate or widen, and this allows more blood to be pumped by these parts of our body and also elevates our blood pressure. This is all a part of the fight or flight response. Once the acute stress episode has passed, the body returns to its normal state. But chronic stress or constant stress experienced over a prolonged period of time can contribute to long-term problems for heart and blood vessels. The consistent and ongoing increase in heart rate and the elevated levels of stress hormones and of blood pressure definitely take a toll on the body. And obviously this long-term ongoing stress can also increase the risk for hypertension, heart attack, or stroke. We've talked a lot in our past episodes about the gut-brain connection. So if you missed those episodes, go back and check in with those. Um, We had amazing guests like Dr. Liz Lipsky. Stress can affect this brain-gut communication and may trigger pain, bloating, and other gut discomfort to be felt more easily. Our digestion actually seizes up during our fight-or-flight mode, and so our food is not even actually going to be able to be digested properly during this. And the gut is also inhabited by millions of bacteria, which can influence its health and the brain's health. 
and also impact our ability to think and affect our emotions. And stress is actually associated with changes in our gut bacteria, which can in turn influence mood. Now, let's talk about our brain on stress. So stress not only affects our memory and many other brain functions like mood and anxiety, but it also promotes inflammation, which adversely affects heart health. Thus, stress has been associated with multiple chronic diseases of the brain and heart. There is evidence that chronic persistent stress may actually rewire your brain. Scientists have learned that animals that experience prolonged stress have less activity in the parts of their brain that handle higher order tasks, for example, the prefrontal cortex, and more activity in the primitive parts of their brain that are focused on survival, such as the amygdala. And this makes a lot of sense because you can also look at research that shows that meditation, even just two weeks of meditation, helps to rewire the brain and also parts of the brain associated with survival, like the amygdala, are actually shown to shrink. So we can either train our brain to be relaxed and to be focused and to be um, clear and be able to focus on these high order tasks, or we're going to be in that survival mode and have um, our amygdala and all these other aspects way more active. Keep in mind that our stress response is not a bad thing. It is the body's way of protecting us when we're in extreme danger. The real problem is we're having the stress response to everyday events and conflicts. And for Black people in particular, who actually may be at risk for sudden death or harm at the hands of law enforcement or dealing with microaggressions all day in the form of racism, stress can become a chronic issue that leads to a host of diseases and health imbalances. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll chat with our amazing guest. Are you interested in living your best, healthiest life? I'm Asosa E, also known as The Raw Girl of therawgirl.com, and I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach who specializes in helping you discover what exercise and diet is best for your body and get to the root cause and rebalance if you have a serious chronic condition. Clients who've worked with me have reversed diabetes, hypertension, balanced hormonally, gotten rid of acne for good, and lost hundreds of pounds. If you are interested in reaching your health goals with some support this year, visit therawgirl.com to sign up for a 20-minute call with yours truly. Until then, stay healthy and happy. I am super excited to announce the launch of the new destination I created for online programs called Staying Ageless University. At Staying Ageless University, we create epic content to teach you about holistic wellness and transformational healing programs to help you achieve extraordinary longevity. We believe that learning is an essential component of healing and creating lasting change, and every one of our programs are created from protocols that I have tried and tested on clients who have achieved optimal wellness by following them. Our signature programs include Staying Ageless 30 Plus, which is designed to help women 30 plus interested in staying fly till you're 99 or close to it, create lasting healthy rituals, and the all-new Raw Girls Hormonal Balancing Academy for women suffering with fibroids, PCOS, endometriosis, cysts, or menopausal symptoms if you're ready to use holistic means to take control of your hormones and get your life back. We also have two new programs that are amazing for New Year's 
clean starts detox your life which includes 30-day plant-based detox either raw or vegan and candida and parasites be gone for those who are ready to kick candida overgrowth or parasites to the curb for good enrollment is now open for three of our programs and we officially launched january 1st 2021 you can learn more about us and our program offerings at stayingagelessuniversity.com hope to see you in class Dr. Columbus D. Batiste is a board-certified interventional cardiologist and assistant clinical professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine. From 2008 until 2020, he served as chief of cardiology. Over the years, Dr. Batiste has been recognized for his work in the community and abroad by multiple organizations. In 2010, Dr. Batiste sought to break the cycle of prescriptions and procedures as the sole management of chronic disease and began promoting a long-term solution for his patients through nutrition, stress reduction, and exercise. As a result, in 2011, Dr. Batiste established the Integrative Cardiovascular Disease Program based at Kaiser Permanente. This program sought to prevent the reoccurrence of major adverse cardiac events in patients who were diagnosed with a cardiovascular disease by focusing on lifestyle modification. In 2016, Dr. Batiste led a group that collaborated with Samsung Technologies and developed a virtual cardiac rehabilitation program utilizing a Samsung wearable. Since its launch, the program, which applies the principles of lifestyle, has treated nearly 10,000 patients. Dr. Batista's mission is to share information so that each one can teach one about the benefits of plant-based nutrition, daily exercise, and stress reduction, and therefore provide everyone with the opportunity to take control of their health. The mission and his passion for the community has led to the formation of a nonprofit organization called the Healthy Heart Nation, which provides education through lectures, newsletters, social, and digital media. Hi, Dr. Batiste. Thank you so much for joining Sing Ageless today. Oh, so good to see you. How are you? Good to see you too. I'm doing really well. How about yourself? Same. I can't complain. You know, there's so much to complain about. Right. You have to focus on the positivity, you know, on gratitude. And there's more to be grateful for. Amen. Than to be upset about. That's for, for sure. sure. For sure. So I wanted to start with how did you get into cardiology? And in, in particular, how did you then transition into like incorporating dietary interventions into treatment for patients? Wow. Wow. So I'm going to try and be concise because that right there can be about half an hour right there, that whole, <laughs> that whole evolution. But no, just joking. But, but simply, you know, my dad, you know, he grew up out of that era where education was everything. It was everything. And so growing up, it was one of the three things. Are you going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a business person? Which are you going to be, right? And so unfortunately, I predate all the computer, all the games and everything. So I'd sit there sometimes after I got over the, what, five, six channels that were on TV and, and growing up in Compton, I, I would look, flip through the, uh, the book and I was like, man, the encyclopedia, I, I wanted to be a doctor. And so in my mind, I wanted to be the Lakers team doctor. I grew up watching Magic Johnson and James Ream. <laughs> and I realized that my five foot 10, 10 inch frame was not going to make it to the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to be the Lakers team doctor. And so when I left California and went to a historically black college and university, Oakwood College, now university in, in Alabama, what I realized was that, man, I'm not sure if I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I spent one rotation 
at the University of Virginia and happened to be with an African-American female cardiologist. And I fell in love with the heart. And it was the thing that made the most sense. Mm. It was just, I connected to it. It's just rhythmically, the way it worked, the pharmacology, I could make sense of it. It wasn't something I had to memorize. And so you talk about love affair. I had I developed a love affair of the heart in that moment. And what's interesting, ironic, is that I wrote in my college graduation book or the yearbook that I one day wanted to be chief of cardiology uh, and be a cardiologist, chief of cardiology, although I said UCLA, that later happened at, within Kaiser. Right. Yeah, yeah. So good stuff. Okay. That was how that happened. And Ironically, once I started this journey, I really got into taking care of patients, which is really what life is about, taking care of patients. There was one consistent thing. Hey, doc, what should I eat? Hey, what should I, you know, can I exercise? And I wasn't trained. You've heard this a thousand times. Docs aren't trained in nutrition or lifestyle, not aggressively. Things are changing slowly. And so I gave these little off-the-cuff quips, oh, just, just do well majority of the time. Uh, you know what? The four sevenths rule. I said, you don't love anything a hundred percent. You know, I said, just, just the majority do, do well. All this, this kind of light and fluffy stuff. And it wasn't really, so I started like starting to read. I picked up every book. As long as I had a doctor's name on it, I picked up a book from, not from a great library, not from a university, but from Barnes and Nobles is what I did. And, uh, long story short, around that time, my dad just really, dovetailed in terms of his diabetes and his condition that I grew up with him having ever since I was a kid and his life ended. And I remember sitting back in reflection in that moment Mm -hmm. and wondering what I didn't do to really help him. And after I came out of that fog and that disappointment and that grief that was overwhelming, I really dug into literature in the books. And and there was one consistent thing that came out of it, which is the importance and the power of lifestyle Mm. and really cutting to the chase that we have to be targeted in our approach and very intentional in our efforts to deliver this. And I felt that I did my father a disservice as his son. I did my father a disservice as his son, who happens to be a physician. And I did my patients a tremendous disservice. That would sit there telling me, hey, doc, thanks for saving my life. Well, did I really? Who came back to see me a second and third and fourth time in the procedure lab and said, hey, doc, you did a great job. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's you. Really? I did a great job, but you're back. What changed? And so right. that, that was really the, the springboard that shifted the trajectory of my career. Not to say I I left aside all the things of Western medicine, because I haven't. I still put in stents. I still write prescriptions. But my focus has completely shifted, completely and, and wholeheartedly shifted over towards the important aspects of life, which is um, exercise, nutrition, and stress. Those are the key components. Mm. So good. So good. Especially the part about going to Barnes and Noble University child, because I'm sorry, I don't think that people with credentials read enough. I I think that we should, I mean, health and and nutrition and, and medicine is constantly evolving. And so we should be required to be on the cutting edge of what is happening and be aware and be reading all the time, honestly, but that's my nerdy opinion. (laughs) 
No, you know what? Listen, you're absolutely right. And so, I mean, for those of you who haven't watched, and thank you, by the way, for, for watching one of the things we'll talk about later on, the project I'm working on uh, in my heart. But one thing we say in there is we say we give several equations. But one of the equations we give is that stress equals demands minus resources. And we speak about resources go where value is placed. Resources go where value is placed. So follow this line of thought, right? So in medical school, you put value on, you put resources into what you value. So I put mm. resources into education to what's value? My test. That test doesn't test you for lifestyle, for, for nutrition, mm. for exercise. So I put, I don't value that. Now yeah. I'm out of training. And I am going to have to take another test to pass and become board certified, what everyone wants to see. So now, once again, where do I put resources? Well, the testing, once again, does not test you on mm. lifestyle, on nutrition. So once again, physicians are, they're taught by habit and by influence not to value, to devalue those things. Now I come into practice and let's say that I do want to, to emphasize that. Well, reimbursement does not value lifestyle historically. So now where do I put my resources yeah. as an independent provider? Not there. And so that's where the problem is. It's so convoluted as to why providers do not invest the time into reading and researching and really looking in the same way they do about the new pills that come out, in the same way that we do as it relates to new yeah. procedures and so forth. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I'm glad you brought that up and, and just how the chain of thing flows. Because when I started my career, I worked in a clinic with doctors and I found myself often giving them studies. Like, didn't you see this study? Like they were stuck in literally the 90s. Like, have you missed all of the things that have happened <laughs> from 1990 to the present? You know, Absolutely. so I found that just fascinating. I was like, wow, that is very interesting. So let's talk about your presentation. So I watched this slave food presentation by you and your brilliant doctor partner friend. And I put, I'm going to put that link in the show notes because I think that people should watch it. It's going to take y'all some time to watch it, but you should <laughs> so watch it. <laughs> and I thought it was brilliant for a couple reasons. I thought it was brilliant because when I heard the, the title of the project, when I heard slave food, I thought, Oh, cool. Okay. They're going to talk about how soul food is really like, you know, came from slavery and like, you know what I mean? And like, oh, it's not the, actually not that good for you. But you took it to a whole other deeper level. And I was like, oh, okay. This is my, <laughs> I was like, okay, we're going deep. That's okay, right. so can you, let's start with, can you break down for people what your definition of slave food is? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, first, let me ask you a question. I know this yeah. is your show. What what really struck you when you heard the title slave food? Hmm. What do you mean? Well, like, I mean, I so we get so many different responses, like yeah. a visceral response. Either yeah. we love it or how could you or why are you being divisive like this as it relates to just the title? The title yeah. grabs people in terms of slave food or the slave food project. Yeah. Like, I think for me, I, I mean, I'm in the business of helping people get over their addictions, you know, and so, and using behavioral change to do this. So for me, I just, I, although that that was there, my mind immediately goes to soul food, chitlins, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
that's where my mind goes to. And I go, wait a minute, is this some sort of like, you know, it's tricky. It's a tricky thing to talk about soul food because just like I'm Nigerian and I have cultural foods, soul food is a cultural part of African-American history. And so you, for me, I'm always trying to get people to embrace their cultural foods, but change the ingredients. Because a lot of times those ingredients be killing people. You know yeah, what I mean? So, absolutely. you know, I'm, I was on the fence. I didn't have any like super crazy visceral relation, um, you know, responses to it. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, when I look at what is soul, what is slave food and there's a difference from the slave food projects. I'm going to start first with my thoughts on what is slave food. Okay. So slave food, what we know historically for the most part were the castoffs, the refuse, the things that were discarded, the parts of the, the, the animal that those in power did not seek to, to use anymore for their substance. Right. It was essentially the manipulation of nutrition for profit and for power that was done from the moment yeah. of, of the transatlantic slave trade all the way through of measuring the amount of food that's given and the right amount to keep you just well enough to work, but not strong enough to really fight. And so when we look at slave food, that's a significant component. Now, here's the thing. I believe that soul food is somewhat of a of a reflection. It's more of a, it's, we're sitting there and it's like, let me memorialize this slave food. Let me celebrate what making lemons. Mm. But where we lose sight of is the fact that we lose sight on the resiliency of that population who was enslaved and how they sought and they grew vegetables in the backyard. They woke, they woke up early mornings before they had to go out and, and work the fields and work their own fields, that they, they tended to it and they supplemented yeah. the diet with resiliency, that resiliency. And so I would love to see resiliency actualize as opposed to the remnants that are memorial, you know, that are celebrated. Mm. The resiliency of that yeah. Of the the fruits and the vegetables and the and those things that they were able to create really and and to make that I think that we should we should recognize in theory the fact that listen we can make something out of nothing that we can survive yeah. on but not literal sense because that literal sense was not meant for our good it was meant as just hey here's just the fat here's these other the other aspects so. That's what my growing sentiment of slave food is, is that when we look back culturally, and you can speak to this more than I can with your travels, it's just more from my reading, that we look at the root vegetables and we look at the richness of the soil that pertains inside of Africa. And we see that not only in Africa, around the world, that hence the reason of blue zones, the most long-lived individuals around multiple societies are are predominantly plant-based. And so they're eating food of the earth that's rich and you want to, you know, but it's not until we move in this Western culture that we begin to adopt these substances. But lastly, I'll say this is that what Hmm. the slave food project is, why it's so complex for those of you out there who haven't watched it or seen it, is that it's not just a focus on food. It is looking at the intersection between stress, which everyone faces, the Hmm. stressor of racial discrimination. Right. It could be it could be racial discrimination. It could be gender. It could be orientation discrimination that's there and its impact in the development of health disparities. But here's another unique component. Nutritional stress, this relationship of how our food mm. were, is related to our stress and our reaction. And that 
all leads in this crucible of conflict that leads to the birth of disease. And so that's really what this project is. It first is focusing on those of African descent, but it's not meant to be exclusive of others because I'll be honest with you. Our intent was to start with African-American, then move over to the Hispanic, then move over to the indigenous population. Then to move well, that's over- what I thought was so profound about the way you defined it. What was so profound about how you defined it was that it could be applicable to so many people. It could be applicable to anybody. And that's where I was like, oh, they trying to get, this is deep. Okay. Because it's, <laughs> because we all could be enslaved by food and we, and we also could look at and maybe you can speak to this, like how things have evolved to now, like we can look at how our food systems are set up now to control us as well, in a way, or you know what I mean? Um, so I don't know if you could speak to just like how it's, uh, how is it showing up now in our modern times? Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy as we moved in this industrialized. And so I'll, 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 this industrialized approach is specific to everyone. I'm going to tailor it according to African-American experience. And so when many African-Americans dealing in terms of segregation left the South, it was called the Great Migration. And where folks kind of ended up in the, the Northwest, they ended up inside California, dispersed all over. And this migration, they moved from lands where they could plant some foods, maybe they're sharecroppers, maybe they had owned their own, to moving now where you had these massive high-rise city, uh, uh, cities. They're living inside of apartments that may be required for cooking techniques, frying and quick boiling. And what studies historians have shown is they've shown those of African descent were some of the first early consumers of fast food, eating street cart foods from Asian and Italian and various aspects that were there. And so it lent itself to this idea of enculturation. Then you transform through the, the embracement of soul food to our current state. Right. In which now we see that you have the red zoning that occurred and you have these areas that are devoid of grocery stores, this apartheid, so to speak, this areas that are devoid of grocery stores that overabundance, these swamps of of calorie dense, nutritionally poor foods that were there. So now we tell people who've grown up in this environment and they become assimilated and now it, it, it pretends over into the school system that they're subsidized by the government, right? So these food substances are subsidized in terms of standard American diet. Not only are they subsidized, and what that means is the price point is less. I can buy five burgers for a dollar. A salad's going to cost me $5, which am I going to use, right? That's going to trigger my dopaminergic Mm -hmm. receptors and make me addicted to it, right? Not only is that, the government also sponsors the advertisement. So they now fund, they Mm. take a step back. The government also, they they made these small business association loans that then allowed many of these fast food establishments to enter into this environment. They subsidize the food so the price point's lower, and our tax dollars then go into the advertisement. Advertisement that studies have mm. repeatedly are targeted towards people of black and brown complexion. So now we tell people, well, just choose better. Make a better choice. Well, now... Mm. I grew up in a city like I grew up in. I grew up in, in South Central LA. And I remember as a kid, didn't strike me until years and decades later, I drive with my dad and we drive 20 plus miles to the grocery store. 20 plus miles to the grocery store. Wow. For fruits and vegetables that were cheaper in, in more affluent areas, were nicer quality than the areas in which I lived. What That's nothing but what's called wow. a food 
certain food swamp, in other words, other words known as food apartheid. So there's there's challenges that that we face. And so the first step is knowledge, is understanding. And we, you know, one of the key things is that we talk about the business of business is business. Now, I didn't come up with that, but we had an insider on one of our shows. Oh. He, said, he said, listen, Doc, I'm going to tell you, these companies are not because they hate you. It's about the, about the dollar. The, the dollar. The bottom line is dollar. The business of business is business. My business is health. Our business should be our well-being. Well, wasn't slavery about the dollar, too? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And so we need to have just like we talk about just social justice. How can you have social justice without having food justice, without having health justice, a revolution where people in certain communities aren't even able to partake of Social Security because they die sicker. They live sicker and die sooner. (laughs) You live sicker Mm. working Mm. before you can even reap the benefits of Social Security. You live with a lower wealth income. Than other groups because you perhaps can't even afford it. My my father-in-law, my father and my father-in-law died the same exact year. My father-in-law had been in and out of dialysis from high blood pressure, a treatable disease, a reversible disease by lifestyle. My father died from complications of diabetes that ravaged his body over the course of several decades. That is a preventable disease, right? The power is there. We just have to grab hold of it. It's like I give you a lottery ticket for a billion dollars. Are you not going to pick it up? I'm picking it up. (laughs) I'm picking it up and I don't even play, but I'm picking it up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. So you you talked about, um, you know, dying sooner. And this this podcast is about longevity because I'm obsessed with it. But um, when I look at some stuff about African-Americans, I find it very interesting. So I see things about... Um, African-Americans are actually having longer telomeres, but that may be that it, they actually accelerate the the rate of acceleration when exposed to like external stressors and stuff is actually faster than um, European-American counterparts. I don't know how true that is or how many more studies need to be done exactly, but I find that fascinating. What kinds of research have you seen around longevity um, in African-Americans? No, I think I think to follow up, I think that's the key thing. And for those of you out there who are unfamiliar with telomeres, I think one of the key things is think of it like your shoelaces and the caps of your shoelaces have these this plastic tip, although we're trying not to use plastic as much as possible. Right. And so but when that plastic breaks in your shoelace phrase, it's not as usable. It's a marker that there's a problem that's going on. And so at the tips of your DNA are capped. And when those that cap recedes, it gets smaller and smaller. It's predictive of, of your death or that the lack of longevity that's there. And what studies have shown is just that. There's studies that have shown that 13-year-old African-American youth who've gone through stress and social issues of discrimination have shorter telomeres than 40-year-old Caucasian women who have cancer. That's how powerful Whoa. it is. That's how powerful Jeez. it is. But here's the here's the here's the saving grace, right? We know that when you are embraced, when you come together as a community, when you begin to feed that body, right, mind, body, and spirit, that you can lengthen the telomeres or what studies are showing with that. Studies have shown that even looking at like the lights of Dr. Blackburn and Dr. Ornish have shown that in the setting of prostate cancer and breast cancer, that you can have lengthening 
of your telomeres by adopting moving towards your diet that's more of of the ancients of whole food plant based of of yeah. moving more of 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 loving more as as opposed to hating that these things begin the process of lengthening the telomeres so there is robust studies for sure and i was just going to add to what you were saying that meditation has been proven by research to lengthen telomeres yes. and 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 it does so pretty significantly especially if you're doing regular meditation so it's like a lot of these lifestyle things are really really it for <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, the, the part I, I tell folks about meditation that's so important and, and people may get scared by meditation or the concept like that. And I say, OK, well, fine. Just focus on your breathing. OK, fine. Focus on prayer, that, that sort of thing. Wherever your, your, your thoughts are, where you're able to have some calming and centering. And studies are shown thickening of the prefrontal cortex. That's the reasoning part of the brain. That's the part of the brain that allows you to think and build your, your resiliency, your willpower. And so studies have shown you're more inclined to be able to adapt and uh, or adopt positive habits when you begin to embrace things like mindfulness and meditation. So you're absolutely right. But, you know, one of the key things I always kind of say when it comes to longevity is we speak about health span versus lifespan. And people say, well, doc, I'm not going to live forever. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to live forever. It's about what my goal is for everyone is to increase your health span. Right. What do I mean by that? That mm -hmm. time in your life where you're not chained to pills, you're not chained to procedures, that your calendar doesn't revolve around your doctor's appointments, that you're able to live life and live a life of purpose with your family and others is increasing your health span. And studies have shown African-Americans have a shorter health span compared to other ethnicities on top of our lifespan. Mm. Sicker and sooner. Mm, interesting. So I would. Venture to say, so we know that racism is a part of it because clearly just even from that example you gave, it's like, whoa, but then there's the health disparity issue, right? So the access to care, but that issue seems so big that it, it sometimes people are just like, well, I guess we should do nothing because there's, there's so much to do. Yeah. <laughs> where do you think that we need to start? Like, where is the starting point? Well, I mean, I think on the individual, reason why one of the many reasons I focus on nutrition is that's something that I make a choice every single day in what I put in my body. That's something I have control over to some degree. Now, we spoke about the environment that we're set up. It's an environment that may be set up to fail for many of us in terms of our access to bodegas, the, the convenience stores that are there, that it's a conscious decision that's there. But it is something that you can tackle. That's one component of social determinants of health. The second thing that we can do is that which is a corollary to that, is that our dollars speak volumes. We have huge mm. power as a group, as African-Americans, as people of, 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 of Hispanic descent or Latin descent. We have huge purchasing power. We have to flex our dollars because guess what? Why are we now seeing this rise in plant-based meats and everything says plant-based on it? Because there's a recognition that there is an interest and that dollars are going there. Why wasn't that present 30 years ago? Because of the fact that it was not recognized that there was a value for it. And so we have to fill yeah. with our dollars and have our athletes, have our, our celebrities to echo and to be a resounding voice with that. Not just people like me. I mean, they, I'm just another doctor out there. But when they see a celebrity like yourself, when they see others out there who are echoing and espousing <laughs> the ideas of this, that's what gets people galvanized to make change. 
It's true. That's so good. That's so, so good. Anything else you'd like to add about just about longevity and health in general that people should focus on? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, listen, it's like sitting on a three-legged stool or even a four-legged chair, right? We focus so much on one thing and many inside the lifestyle nutrition world, we focus on food alone and not like you brought up mindfulness, bring up moving. People are scared of exercise. I'm not exercising. I don't feel like just, I say move, park further away, take the stairs, Stand more than you sit. Just move around. Be functional. I mean, we lose sight in some of the basic old school stuff of of chopping, standing and chopping. You know, I like to joke around and say, just get neat with it. What's neat? Non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Just by standing, you're burning calories. Just by moving, these are the components that can help your outlook. Because when we're looking at, we're faced with reality of people losing their jobs, of people being quarantined and isolated for, for times at length. And so when you look at like the mental outlook for everyone out there, they're like, it's too overwhelming. That's why there's been a rise in comfort foods right now. So we have to be intentional. We have to plan. Don't leave it to chance. You have to plan. What's my day going to look like? When am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? How am I going to get it? The food that I'm going to get. Be very specific. Get smart goals. I want you to be specific and intentional. Don't say, okay, I'm going to eat more fruits and vegetables, doc. No, that, that don't fly. I yeah. want you to tell me what vegetable are you going to eat? Don't tell me just vegetables. Are you going to eat spinach? No, I don't like spinach. You're going to eat Brussels sprouts? No, I don't like Brussels sprouts. You're going to eat ke- uh, uh, mustards? Okay, I like mustards or I like kale or I like whatever. Be very specific. Then tell us a measurable amount. Or oh, I'm going to eat as much as I can. What does that mean? A cup? A half a cup, be very specific. Make it something that's attainable and relevant towards your goals. You know, when I was in training, I remember I had this this six foot tall um, Norwegian attending and she would Mm -hmm. sit there and say, Batiste, your plan has to match your impression. Your plan (laughs) has to match. If your impression is this person has an infection, then your plan should be antibiotics or antivirals, whatever it may be. If your impression is there's a broken bone, this is your plan. If your plan is you want to live healthfully, if your plan is you want to live an ageless existence, then your plan has to be, I'm daily working on tools that's going to take care of that plan, that impression, right? That's really the that we have to seek. So that's what I want folks out there to remember. Your plan has to match your impression of what you want for your life. That's the key. So good. Where can people find you online? And where can people, actually, I'll link the Slave Food Project as well. But where can people find you online? So I am an old hat. And so I'm I'm just getting into the whole idea of social media. But I do have a small presence on uh, Instagram at Healthy Heart Doc. uh, Also on Facebook. Facebook at Healthy Heart Doc. And then lastly, on Twitter at I Am Healthy Heart. So I'm starting to get more robust in terms of some of those activities out there and sharing thoughts and quips and various aspects. But looking forward to meeting all of you online too as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's always good chatting with you. All right. 
right, it is time to take a question from Instagram or email. Remember, if you would like to have your question answered on the show, all you got to do is send me a DM, slide up in my DMs, or respond to the call for questions via my profile at The Raw Girl, or contact me via my website, therawgirl.com. Today's question is from Maisha via Instagram, who says, my brother is noticing white spots on his nails. Do you have a multivitamin you recommend? Hi, Maisha. Thanks so much for reaching out. So one theory floating around is that white spots on nails can happen because of damage to the nail bed. Although this is definitely a possibility from my holistic training and personal experience, I know that the white spots on nails can also be linked to nutritional deficiencies, specifically of selenium and zinc. When I was living and working in Ghana, there was limited access to leafy green vegetables, nuts, and seeds, and I had to modify my diet to survive as a vegetarian. Because I wasn't getting the variety I normally would, I also ended up with a bunch of white spots on my nails. Selenium deficiency can show up as muscle pain, weakness, loss of pigment in the hair and skin, and whitening of the nail beds. Selenium is in meats, but there are plant-based sources like Brazil nuts, sunflower seeds, wheat, rice, and oat bran. And a deficiency in zinc can lead to stunted growth, diarrhea, impotence, hair loss, eye and skin lesions, impaired appetite, and depressed immunity, which we're all aware of acutely at this moment. Zinc deficiency is very common and can be tested at home using a zinc tally test. Some plant-based sources of zinc include legumes like chickpeas, uh, lentils, most beans, squash seeds, pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds, and hemp seeds. To make sure that he gets an adequate amount of both of these nutrients, make sure the multivitamin he's taking has 100% or more of the daily value, and also ensure that he increases consumption of whole foods to support. So around two Brazil nuts a day will actually help with your selenium intake. And with zinc, he can use a zinc tally test. It's a liquid supplement, which will help you test your levels as you progress. You basically can take a teaspoon, swish it around in your mouth for about 10 seconds, if you taste nothing, you're likely zinc deficient. If you have a slight metallic-y taste, you may need additional supportive supplementation. And if you have a strong bitter taste, you are likely zinc sufficient. So if you take it and you're zinc sufficient, just continue taking your multivitamin and you should be fine. If you figure that, uh, that you need additional support or that you're likely deficient, you can actually keep supplementing with a zinc tally test about a teaspoon a day until you finally do get a taste. And then you can actually just switch to your multivitamin. I hope that helps. All right, y'all. I hope that today's episode gave you some insights on how stress can affect the body and obviously on how racism is a unique stressor, what slave food is, uh, more on the dangerous and addictive nature of processed food and animal foods. If you're someone who knows you need to break your addiction to foods that are not great for you, I'm challenging you this week to do something different and to commit to abstaining from whatever slave food you have been consuming for the next month. Toss it out. Don't buy it. And give your body a month to get adjusted. Today, I leave you with a long but incredibly poignant quote by Joel Foreman, MD. The modern food and drug industry has converted a significant portion of the world's people to a new religion, a massive cult of pleasure seekers who consume coffee, cigarettes, soft drinks, candy, chocolate, alcohol, processed foods, fast foods, and concentrated dairy fat or cheese in a self-indulgent orgy of destructive behavior. 
When the inevitable results of such bad habits appear, pain, suffering, sickness, and disease, the addicted cult members drag themselves to physicians and demand drugs to alleviate their pain, mask their symptoms, and cure their diseases. These revelers become so drunk on their addictive behavior and the accompanying addictive thinking that they can no longer tell the difference between health and health care. Well, that's all for today, sis. If you're looking for more health tips or have a question for the show, find me on Instagram at The Raw Girl. You can also find me and contact me through my website, therawgirl.com. For more on the show or to listen to past episodes, visit stayingagelessshow.com. To watch the video interview from this podcast, go to our YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash The Raw Girl. Mm-hmm.